This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I couldn't think of a worse way for COVID era masking on transport to be over than by a single federal judge in Florida. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the court and the law and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover some of those things for Slate. This week, we're actually going to turn our eyes briefly from the U.S. Supreme Court to a federal district court in Florida, which decided on Monday to lift the mask mandate for public transportation all around the country. At one level, it could seem a little trivial. The mandate was going to expire May 3rd. Anyhow, the ruling came from a newly minted Trump judge who basically just tortured the word sanitation into a smoldering heap in order to get herself there. And I guess everybody hates masks now, so no big deal. But actually, this ruling was a big deal, and it feels like another episode of a lone federal jurist substituting their own public health opinion for that of an entire government agency tasked with dealing with what is still, my friends, a lethal pandemic. It also feels like part of a larger effort to ensure that those very agencies are increasingly sidelined with claims of government overreach and really expansive new ideas about liberty. And now the Biden administration is appealing in a move that risks creating a legal precedent they don't want. Here is Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, explaining why. The objective here is, of course, to appeal the 15-day extension, but also to preserve the CDC authority over the long term, because as we've noted from here, we expect there to be ups and downs in the pandemic, and we certainly want the CDC to continue to have this authority. Later on in the podcast, Slate Plus members will be able to listen in on my conversation with Mark Joseph Stern as we talk about some of the Supreme Court news we couldn't get into the main show, including a death penalty decision at the Supreme Court and an upcoming case about school prayer. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. If you'd like to join us and have access to bonus segments from lots of your favorite Slate shows, completely ad-free episodes, and to never, ever hit a paywall for any of Slate's articles, 
Do go to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. That is slate.com slash amicus plus. And thank you, as ever, for supporting all the work we do. But first, we must turn to public health and masking and the CDC, because on Monday, Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell handed down a sweeping 59-page opinion, striking down the Biden administration's requirement that passengers wear masks on airplanes and trains and other methods of transportation. The mandate, which also applied to airports and train stations and even ride-sharing services like Lyft and Uber, had been set to expire regardless on May 3rd. But as a result of the ruling, passengers were heard delightedly ripping their masks off mid-flight on Monday night as flight attendants walked up and down the aisles with trash bags. CBS's Errol Barnett is at Reagan National Airport with the latest. There was jubilation in the skies as passengers found out masks were no longer required. No one's any happier than we are. One flight attendant celebrating in song. Look, we've talked several times this year about federal judges just tossing out Biden administration efforts in the environmental context. We talked about it with Professor Richard Lazarus. We talked about it on the vaccine or test mandate with Andy Slavitt. But a lot of public attention was focused this week on Judge Mizell's ruling, partly because, yes, she is the youngest federal judge ever appointed. Donald Trump recess appointed her when she was 33 years old after the ABA found her not qualified. But we're also talking about what feels like a very results-oriented reading of the Public Health Service Act. This was a sprawling 1944 law that gave the federal government power to respond to public health emergencies. Well, joining me to discuss all of that and more is Professor Lawrence O. Gostin. He's professor of global health at Georgetown University. He also directs the World Health Organization Center on Global Health Law. His 2021 book is Global Health Security, a Blueprint for the Future. Professor Larry Gostin, welcome to Amicus. Appreciate it. And I think I just want to start by locating this lawsuit in the context of other ongoing lawsuits. This is just one challenge that's brought by a couple of plaintiffs and the Health Freedom Defense Fund. They filed in July and they were challenging the CDC mask mandate largely under the Administrative Procedures Act, right? So this is one of several such cases that's in the pipeline. Yes, that's right. You know, if you actually, you know, step back. Literally every federal um, uh, attempt to control the COVID-19 pandemic um, from the Biden administration have been at one time or another blocked or struck down by the courts. It's really, it's almost jaw-dropping to think that uh, the scientists who have been charged with protecting the American public haven't been able to act the way they need to to protect us um, during this pandemic. And so no matter what is done, it was, you know, whether it's vaccines or it's masks or it's quarantine um, or it's lockdown or business closures, if it's, you know, regulating, you know, uh, church services, you know, to prevent 
spread in churches, whatever you can think of that CDC or the Biden administration has tried to do, um, the courts have literally trying to handcuff them. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, about what the actual CDC rule provided. Um, the, the rule, as I understand it, was that, quote, a person must wear a mask while boarding, disembarking, and traveling on any conveyance into or within the United States. And can you just walk us through the language? The, the Public Health Service Act, this is this sprawling 1944 law that the Biden administration relied on to defend that policy, it seems to me pretty specifically said that if the government is trying to prevent the spread of communicable diseases, it can, quote, provide for inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be infected or contained. So it feels as though that very broad 1944 statute gave the CDC the authority they thought they had to impose the mandate. But Judge Mazel thought otherwise. And am I wrong to say that all turns on her definition of the word sanitation in that act? Well, I think she thinks that, <laughs> but it's certainly not the case uh, under the law. I mean, of course, a judge always starts with the statute that authorizes the action. You know, CDC has been, uh, you know, doing a, a huge amount of work under the Public Health Services Act since 1944, including um, quarantining, which is a much greater um, uh, restriction of liberty than, than masking. The statute, listen, is, is absolutely clear. CDC can make and enforce such regulations as in its judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, and spread of communicable diseases. And then it goes on to list a number of things, you know, that include sanitation, but then says, or any other thing that in CDC's judgment may be necessary. In 1944, it's impossible that Congress would have envisaged in 2022, there would be a mask mandate, um, but masks are scientifically proved to reduce transmission and to me, you know, if CDC can't do this, it can't do anything. It's not like this is on the edge of CDC's authority, maybe like the housing eviction moratorium, even though I supported that. But this is literally somebody getting on a plane from New York to Los Angeles and making it so they're less likely to contract and transmit a highly contagious virus and disperse across the country. That is CDC's mandate. If CDC, if CDC can't do that, as I say, it's, it's hard to imagine what it could do. And I guess the only other thing I want to say on this sanitation point is that if you read Judge Mazel's opinion, she does, I mean, yeoman's work saying that sanitizing isn't within the, the sort of purview of masking because, as she says, wearing a mask cleans nothing. 
it neither sanitizes the person wearing the mask, nor does it sanitize the conveyance. I mean, she's quite determined. And she, by the way, goes through the other words, right? Fumigation, pest extermination. And she feels very strongly that because she is consulting many dictionaries and doing the work of seeing what sanitation meant uh, in 1944 when the statute was enacted, that she has really come to this conclusion that sanitation is garbage disposal, it's sewage, it's plumbing, but it is not, in fact, anything uh, that is done by a mask. And it's just, at one level, Level, it looks like sophistry at another level. I guess this is how we do law now, right? We just read statutes in ways that as long as the result we seek is achieved, then you can go for pages and pages saying that essentially, you know, CDC has the authority to make businesses clean stuff up, but they do not have the authority to prevent prevent the spread of disease. That's what she's saying, ultimately. And I think that goes to your larger point about what else it would do to preclude the CDC from doing other public health efforts. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't like to use this word because it's maybe too strong, but it really is an ignorant um, way of (laughs) doing this. First of all, I mean, I wrote the textbook on public health law. It's been the standard book for, for decades. And actually start with the idea of sanitation, because sanitation actually had a much broader meaning um, at the time. It was a kind of term for public health. And she calls these the sanitation regulations. I don't know why. CDC, since 1944, and everyone else in law has called it the quarantine regulations. And she focuses on sanitation I don't know why. Why would she not focus on the actual statement that begins, which says that they can make enforce such rules as in its judgment are necessary to prevent the transmission of uh, disease across borders. And at the same time, even if you at the end of the list that includes sanitation, the statute again says, or any other measure or any other measure the CDC, in its judgment, deems necessary. So it makes little sense to me why she would focus on that term. In her opinion, she also says another thing that really just struck me, almost talking points out of the the mega playbook, you know, basically saying that CDC is ripping people out of their seats, on airplanes, they're taking them away if they're unmasked from bus stops and you know that kind of language. But CDC doesn't have the power to detain or to quarantine. She said it doesn't have the power to detain or quarantine. When, as I just mentioned, these are actually called the quarantine regulations. And CDC has used these regulations to detain, isolate, quarantine, and do a whole range of other things, including requiring testing for smallpox, tuberculosis, Ebola, COVID, you name it. So this is this is just a rewriting of history, and it's a rewriting of the statute to achieve a particular talking point or ideological position. And I couldn't think of a worse way 
for COVID era masking on transport uh, to be over than by a single federal judge in Florida. And I just want to point out, because a lot of legal commentators from the left and the right have made essentially the point you just made. Ilya Soman wrote, um, Ian Milheiser wrote this week, her definition of sanitation would preclude, and I guess this is a just super gross example, but it would preclude uh, the CDC from having rules that kept people from urinating on an airplane, because that's also not cleaning the way she describes it. So really what it sweeps out is so much of what we consider public health. And as you say, it does it in this way that is really selecting the most tortured dictionary definition of sanitation to get there. I I do want to stay for one minute on that second point you made, because it didn't get as much attention as her sanitation analysis, and that is this liberty analysis. I just want to read a little bit from the opinion, because she starts talking about liberty, and it's exactly what you just described. People are forcibly removed from their airplane seats, denied boarding at the bus steps, turned away at station doors, all on the suspicion that they will spread a disease. Indeed, the mask mandate enlists local governments, airport employees, flight attendants, ride-sharing drivers to enforce removal measures. So she's making this massive liberty point. And it's so fascinating to me, Larry, because it's directly in tension with some of the liberty arguments. You know, we keep hearing from Supreme Court justices and other justices who are kind of culture warriors uh, that liberty, there is no liberty interest. There is no uh, interest in bodily autonomy. There is no, right? Those are made up, invented rights. And it's such a funny thing to invoke the idea that you have liberty rights uh, to get on planes without a mask, but you actually don't have those liberty rights in a whole bunch of other contexts, including reproductive freedom. Yeah, that's right. Let me just kind of dig in a little further on these things. Just from a common sense point of view and your listeners, if truly CDC only had the power to sanitize, it would be useless. Sanitation is useless against SARS-CoV-2. It could do nothing to protect the American public. And then on liberty, I, you know, I've been just gobbledystruck by the modern conservative ideological notion of liberty, because traditionally, if you look at, you know, conservatism, infe- the, the stopping the spread of infectious diseases was always the exception to liberty. That is, you know, you have a liberty to do anything you want to your own body, that is self-regarding behavior. But nobody has the liberty of transmitting a potentially lethal infectious disease to another person. That's never been uh, the understanding of liberty since John Stuart Mill or whoever it might be. I know of no intellectual position that would say that a person has the right Um, to take measures that are likely to transmit an infection to others that could potentially kill them. Right. That's that's Hornbook law. That's Jacobson versus Massachusetts, right? That's simply your liberty interests and when you are spreading smallpox around. Yeah. 
Exactly. We're going to take a quick break here. We will have more from Professor Larry Gostin in a moment, but we would love it if you would subscribe to the show. Amicus comes out every two weeks, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So let me ask you, I think, my bigger picture question, which is a thing, as I said in my introduction, that's been worrying me in all sorts of contexts. And we talked with Professor Richard Lazarus about the court trying to hobble, you know, the EPA. And we've talked um, to other folks about sort of taking a brickbat to agency. And as you say, all the expertise inherent in an agency, taking a brickbat to that. And one of the things that enables that is just complete death of deference to federal agencies, right? And there is a longstanding tradition that for the most part, if a statute is ambiguous, the agency interpretation is reasonable, judges are meant to defer. That is how, in fact, we get to the place, as you noted, where millions of scientists get to make decisions and federal judges can't second guess them. Here, that seems to be gone, uh, in addition to Judge Mizell saying that the meaning of sanitation is not ambiguous uh, and the CDC's interpretation of sanitation is just not reasonable. She then says, anyway, we wouldn't defer because this is a major question and Congress needed to speak more clearly. So it feels like this is a bit of a one-two punch, right? This is both decreasing deference to agencies and using this major questions doctrine to say that if it's a big deal, as indeed masks are, then Congress has to speak specifically. And this feels really as though it's of a piece with this longer term project of just making it impossible for agencies to do anything at all. Yeah, I think, you know, clearly the the conservative project is to dismantle the regulatory state. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of people think of the regulatory state as just, you know, a lot of, you know, federal bureaucracy. But the truth is, is, is that, you know, if we want a, a clean environment, um, if we want to be protected against dangerous pathogens, if we want to go to work and be safe, if we want to buy a toy and have that toy safe, you absolutely have to allow administrative agencies to do their job. The major questions doctrine is really insidious because basically it says that an agency can't do anything that is important. (laughs) You know, we're right now, we're in a pandemic, you know, ending the pandemic is kind of important. And we don't want to handcuff CDC in doing that. And in any case, when Congress authorizes an agency to act, it, it understands two things. First, the Congress itself doesn't have the expertise, that the expertise lies you know, in career scientists and others in federal agencies. But it also recognizes that Congress can't possibly anticipate all of the harms that would come to the American public in the future. And so in 1944, we could not have imagined that you would have a virus that was so infectious, that was aerosolized, that it could evade immune escape, that it was something that caused nearly a million deaths in the United States. Wouldn't the public want the CDC to be able to act nimbly and decisively in handling that problem? Wouldn't anybody, whether you're conservative or, or, or liberal, Democrat or Republican, it's just at this point, it's hard to understand the antipathy to public health agencies, to CDC, to science itself, to evidence itself. So that actually leads me to the Biden administration's response, which essentially is a wholly political and almost completely disaggregated from public health response. And uh, they have you know, released a, a very, I think you called it a nuanced statement about how you know, the decision is wrong. But this is an almost completely political set of questions now about do you risk appealing and then having it affirmed at the 11th Circuit, or do you just let it lie around like a loaded gun <laughs> to be yeah. used by someone else? I, I saw you were quoted in the New York Times this week saying you're in a position of having two horrible choices. You either risk forever taking away the CDC's power, um, or you let what is feels like a lawless decision just chill the CDC from doing things it needs to do in the future. This is lose-lose for the yeah, administration. This is definitely the Hobson's choice. Yeah, it's it's lose-lose. I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time talking to the White House about this and the Justice Department. It's, it is a hard decision for them. You know, essentially, they want, they want their cake and eat it too. They want to publicly state um, that they don't accept Judge Mazzell's arguments at all. And that CDC absolutely does have this power, but they don't want to risk an adverse ruling uh, in the 11th circuit. And 
If it went to the Supreme Court, I kind of suspect, well, maybe this is wishful thinking, Dahlia, <laughs> but I kind of suspect the Supreme Court would uphold the mask mandate because it's so central to the prevention of, of the interstate transmission of disease. Um, but they would nonetheless significantly narrow the Public Health Service Act and, and get to the edge of declaring a major questions doctrine. Um, so those are, you know, incredibly important legal risks, but they're not just legal risks, they're public health risks if you get an adverse ruling. And the other reason is that CDC was probably going to drop this mandate on mass May 3rd anyway, before the drama of the courts. But Larry, I feel like this goes to another point you've been making, I think, since certainly your COVID public statements, which is, in some sense, the chaos is the point. In some sense, it's very, very useful if you oppose the CDC, you oppose agency law and a regulatory state to just have complete chaos. And I think we could agree, if nothing else, even if we all thought that the mask mandate was going to not be in effect on May 3rd, I think we can agree that the confusion of the airlines making the determination, this complete insanity where you've got folks you know, in midair, ripping off their masks and flight attendants who are just delighted that they do not have to, you know, enforce this anymore. I mean, it just seems to me this is the opposite of, you know, a, a, a well-handled, orderly public health action. And I feel as though you've been saying, you've used the word COVID culture war, and you've mentioned again on the show today how politicized this is, but it does feel as though every time you establish more chaos in the system, it slightly erodes trust in the CDC, it slightly erodes trust in public health, and that feels like a massive, massive losing battle here. Wow, you said it so well, Dahlia. Absolutely. Um, you know, as I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I mean, I it's hard for me to think of a more ruinous way for the COVID era masking to end than at the hand of a single federal judge in Florida. And, you know, that's why, you know, federal judges shouldn't be making these decisions because it has introduced utter chaos, I guess, by design, um, because she could have waited and this would have lapsed. Um, and so you see people in the air. Um, more, more verbal abuse, more, um, uh, more people, uh, even uh, violent people who are vulnerable, who you know, compromised, the elderly, children under five who can't be vaccinated, all you know, scared to death about you know flying as people are ripping their masks off, and then some. Most airlines not enforcing it. Some are enforcing it. It's just utter chaos. Um, and if that was the judge's intent, she was successful. But the better way would have been to allow career scientists to evaluate the evidence, look to see if we have our hospitals filling up, and then making a planned, orderly decision um, uh, to either lift or continue the mandate. Uh, wouldn't that have been a much better outcome? Um, but that's not the America we live in now. The America we live in is, you know, just you know, no matter what 
the cost. And in, in this case, the cost is death. Um, you just stand by your your guns um, and you make your political point. Um, if we can't come together in a once in a lifetime health crisis, I don't know when we can. I want to ask you one last um, sort of big picture question, because, of course, as soon as this decision came down on Monday, we had the now typical folks on the left saying, how does one unelected judge make a decision that invalidates an entire you know, national policy? And of course, folks on the right saying, oh, come on, you loved it when it was the travel ban, right? And I think we have this existential question now about nationwide injunctions, when they're legitimate, when they're not. Yeah, um, It feels like it's descended into another chaos is the point, kind of welter of both siderism. But I, I wonder if you have, at least for our listeners, some kind of neutral principled way to think about nationwide injunctions, single district court judges with lifetime tenure, you know, striking down entire policies, or is it just one of those depends on whose ox is gored, there's no neutral principle left? You either allow a federal judge to strike something down nationally, you don't. Um, and you can't take sides depending upon whether, you know, you you like this policy, or you don't like that policy. So we have to have a neutral principle in our democracy. You know, a lot of people have told me, including even in the Biden administration, they said, well, you know, this is such a poorly recent decision. It was, she was clearly just making, you know, political points why don't we just ignore what she said and and do it anyway? Um, and my answer to that is no. Um, you have to abide by the rule of law. You have to swallow hard. You either appeal it um, or you comply with it. Um, and we've been down this road before um, uh, with COVID and the Biden administration. You'll remember that the housing eviction moratorium came before the Supreme Court. And it was very similar to this because it was about to expire. The Supreme Court upheld it, but it clearly signaled um, to the Bi President Biden, you know, let this expire and don't test us. And when that happened, there was a big political debate in the White House. I weighed in and I said, you've got to uh, no matter what you think about the eviction moratorium, you've got to respect what the Supreme Court said. They refused to. It went back to the court. The court struck it down with a very negative precedent. And now forevermore housing eviction moratoriums are not in the toolbox of CDC. So the, the lesson is no matter what you agree or disagree with, you swallow hard and you abide by the rule of law. I think that you're at least hinting at something that did bother me about the coverage of Judge Mazzell and the very personal, you know, oh, she's only 33 and she, you know, was ranked unqualified, ranked unqualified <laughs> and had only ever tried two cases. And in both cases, she was in law school. Like, I think that dumping on her as a dummy doesn't get us where we want to go. Right. And I think that in some sense, whatever you think of this opinion, 
uh, not a dummy and not super helpful to turn this into a festival of trashing a young female Trump judge. This is, as you've said, a much, much, much larger, more existential problem about decades long conservative legal movement effort to trash the regulatory state, you know, to, to hobble. Uh, Chevron deference to hobble any effort for agencies to do anything. And so a, a not useful exercise here is to turn it into kind of a cartoonish slapdown of a single judge, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, of course, you're right. I, I have to admit, I've been a little bit guilty of that because it was too, been too tempting. But you're totally right. You're totally right. That is the way we should do it. But I think there may be a, a bigger point here, which is you know, basically, a president shouldn't appoint somebody after he's lost the election, who's then ratified on a party line vote after the American Bar Association rates that person unqualified. There's something wrong with our system that allows that. You know, we now have a CDC because of this opinion and and others before it. Um, that's literally gun shy about doing something big and important um, to protect the American public. Um, and so I think uh, conservatives should should be careful what they wish for, um, because one day there will be a really major threat to America. Um, and you don't want CDC to be diffident. You want them to act nimbly and decisively. And all that's happened during COVID is going to mean the opposite, that CDC will be reluctant to act when we need them most. Professor Lawrence O. Gostin is professor of global health law at Georgetown University. He also directs the World Health Organization's Center on Global Health Law, and his 2021 book is Global Health Security, A Blueprint for the Future. Larry, I cannot think of anybody who would have been a better discussant with a bunch of, of issues that on one level feel almost hard to identify why it's important and that on another level feels like it's absolutely everything we should be talking about right now. So thank you so, so much for giving us your time today. Well, thank you, Dahlia. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. It's really fascinating conversation. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus, the holy cow, we taped it in studio edition. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for all your letters and questions. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com. Or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Shana Roth. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and we will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.